Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Beer and Money. My name is Ryan Burklow. And I'm Alex Collins. And today is part three of our three-part serious series, not serious, although it could be serious, <laughs> three-part series discussing turning assets into income. And the reason we're, we're going over this, I know many of our listeners are not at the stage of retirement. They're probably not even like thinking about like retirement planning per se, at least from the standpoint of like <laughs> turning on the income. Pulling the trigger. But more so understanding, like the more we understand how people turn assets into income, the better decisions we can make today so that we can set ourselves up for the most flexibility when we get there. Well, and it's it's absolutely hilarious whether we talk whether we're talking to somebody in their twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, sometimes even sixties, and we ask them the question, "Okay, cool, so you've amassed one million, five million, ten million, whatever the number is. How do you go about turning this ten million dollars into an income stream?" Deer and headlights. Yeah, just absolute deer and headlights of like, what do you mean? Yep. Like nine times out of 10, that is the question that we get. What do you mean by that? Oh, yep. well, how do you choose how much income you can take? Uh, I have no idea. You, you tell me. So if, if you did not start in the first episode of this series, which should be labeled, do you have true liquidity? Make sure you start out. So that was two episodes ago. Make sure you start there before you get to this episode, okay? Because a lot of the stuff that we spoke about or we will speak into today, we're going to do at a faster pace because we've already spoken about it in the last two and and they're piggybacking on each other. So before we dive in into today's episode, um, I'm still drinking the Oktoberfest because I had a couple of beers here, Alex, so nothing new on my end of, of beer of the day, but what are you drinking right now? Oh, Lucille. Yeah. Old friend. Drinking. Georgetown Brewery. This is just a great, great beer. If you are not familiar with Lucille and you are anywhere in the Seattle area, go down to Georgetown, go to Georgetown Brewery and get a Lucille. Yep. Solid one. That That's a nine out of 10 bottle cap rating, even though, even though I'm not drinking it. Oh, for me, this is a 10 out of 10. Yeah. I love this beer. Awesome. Like, this is probably my second favorite beer of all time. Yeah, definitely check it out. So, all right, well, let's dive into today's episode. So I'm going to share my screen here. Uh, again, if you are uh, listening to us on the podcast, um, definitely check out our YouTube channel because we are putting some numbers into this. And I think we do a pretty good job of explaining what we're talking about here uh, for the auditory side of stuff. But the visual side, I think, does help a bit. So check out the YouTube channel as well. Yeah, we're, we're going to go through our super abbreviated history of taxes real quick. Uh, so Ryan, if you would go navigate to the third party and history of taxes, um, oftentimes when we go through this, clients are surprised that we did not have a federal income tax before 1913. Um, it was originally capped at 7% as the highest marginal tax bracket and 1% as the lowest tax bracket. Uh, and it was promised that this was going to be a temporary thing. Uh, by the way, since it was enacted, it has never gone away. It's gone up, it's gone down, it's gone sideways, but it's never gone away. Yep. Uh, the highlights are at the peak, it hit 94%, meaning if you were the top tax bracket and you earned 
one extra dollar, 94 cents of that went to the federal government. And currently the lowest marginal tax bracket was at 23% that same year. (laughs) Which means that regardless of where you were at, if you were earning money, you were taxed at a relatively high rate. Um, Today, we're sitting at 37% as the high rate and 10% as the low rate. So historically speaking, we're relatively low right now. And it's important to understand that there is a massive difference. And one of the cheeky ways that the government can go ahead and increase the tax brackets on us is by not changing anything. If our income goes up because of inflation and other things and the tax brackets stay the same, we're going to wind up paying more taxes. Yep. Um, And so there's like – this is, it's important to make sure you're going through this with your CPA. It's important that you're getting uh, tax insight and tax strategies from your advisors um, and make sure that you're walking through this. Um, so same as last week, if we've got $350,000 worth of uh, income and all 350 of it is taxable, uh, we're in a 24% marginal rate and we're in a 20% effective rate, um, 20.23. Um, which means that we're paying $70,000 in taxes on our $350,000 worth of income. Now, if we're able to go ahead and keep that three hundred and fifty the same, but only have 250 of it be taxable, we're still in the marginal bracket of 24%. So if we earn another dollar, we're still paying 24 cents on that dollar. However, our total tax bill dropped from 70,000 all the way down to 46,000. So we saved ourselves a lot of taxes, which is why our effective rate dropped from 20.23 all the way down to 13.37. So we paid a lot less tax overall, even though the rate at tax that we paid didn't really change. The rate of tax on all of our money changed, but not on an extra dollar's worth of earnings. So how we do this scenario too that the, our YouTube channels is is seeing and uh, you know obviously our listeners it it's about where you're putting your money when you get to retirement where is your money on your balance sheet how is it taxed and then what's the strategy in place to turn it into income yeah so the strategy that we talked about last week the only dollars that are eligible for this type of tax reduction strategy are. Investment dollars, dollars that are not inside of qualified retirement plans, dollars that are not inside of Roth. (coughs) Sorry, I still have the uh, lingering congestion and scratchiness in my voice. Um, So last week we talked about creating more income, both gross before taxes and net after tax cash flow from only 75% of the money. If you want more details on that, go listen to the previous episode. Uh, but Ryan, let's go take a look at it. another strategy, which is called the uh, tax reduction associated with annuitization of an asset. So again, we're looking at the same $2 million, the same 30-year time period, the same 4% investment rate of return, the same 24% tax rate. Um, we're looking at somebody who's 65 um, we're going to look at, at uh, uh, comparing that asset with a $2 million asset, um, and we're going to 
uh, to what's called annuitization. Um, and again, same, same in terms of the investment tax bracket, everything we're trying to keep the same in this example, when we annuitize something that is a different structure, we're no longer getting a rate of return. Uh, we are simply giving, uh, a lump sum of money and we're receiving cash flow in return. So go ahead and click calculate Ryan. And if we take a look at the interest only, that's going to look exactly the same. $2 million, 8%. Uh, or sorry, 4% uh, uh, distribution rate, $80,000, same $19,000 in taxes, same $60,000 net of taxes. And the legacy doesn't change. That's the design of that strategy is that it's safe. Uh, it's relatively secure. And we're going to get our $2.4 million over a 30-year time period. We're only get to enjoy about 1.8 of it. Now, when we annuitize, scroll back up to the top again, Ryan. In year one, <clears throat> we actually get even more cash flow than we got with the amortization strategy. Here, we're getting $151,000 in year one. And instead of paying $19,000 in taxes, we're paying a little bit under twelve, seven thousand dollars $7,000 less in taxes, which is over a third less, which means that we're going to get to enjoy $139,000 and change which is more than twice the amount of money in the interest-only strategy. It is absolutely just ridiculous the amount of cash flow that we're able to create with this strategy comparatively. Now, just to be clear, we're not, again, this is concepts you understand the different strategies. We would never tell someone, hey, take your total assets and then annuitize it. Like we would never tell you to do that. <laughs> We wouldn't be allowed to, to do that, yeah. nor would we recommend doing that. This is explaining how things are taxed and the different strategies and how do we turn on the highest net income from our assets. Correct. The, the issues with this particular strategy is that there's absolutely no liquidity. And in the way in which we have it structured right now, there's no legacy value either. So we have to be okay taking that $2 million and saying, kids, you're not going to get it. For some people, that's awesome. For other people, they're like, wait, why would I want to do that? So when we go down and take a look at the sum total of all this, we're able to generate, oh yeah, um, at some point in year 20, our taxes start going up and they go from a little under 12 to a little over 19. Now, we're paying 19 on the other side. And we still wind up with $132,000 net, which is still more than twice what we pay, what we were receiving on the other side. The reason that this happens is that the government says that we've run out of our basis or the original money that we put into it. And so now at that point, all of the future dollars become taxable. That happens partway into year 20, which is why we get this stair step effect. And then in year 21, all of the income, 151 is taxable, which means our tax cost jumps up to $36,000 and change. However, our net income is still almost $115,000 per year, which is just a little bit less than 2x what our net income is on the other side. In total, we're able to create 3.9 million dollars of net after tax income 
or cash flow using this strategy and we compare that to what we originally started with, which was 1.8, we're up 115% in terms of the amount of income. We have created more than $2 million of additional net after-tax cash flow. That is massive. If this $2 million is a portion of somebody's uh, net worth, we might want to look at doing this type of a strategy. We certainly can't do it if this is all of their assets. So for a second, Ryan, let's go ahead and uh, cut it from 2 million and let's just show 1.2. I'm using 1.2 as opposed to 1.5. Last week we used 1.5. We're able to use, utilize more in that strategy than we are in a strategy like this because of limitations from a compliance standpoint, from a cash flow, from a liquidity standpoint, uh, things of that nature. But still turns on <coughs> 1.2 turns on 90, almost 91,000 of gross income. Once we subtract out a $7,000 tax bill, our net is 83,611 compared to 60,000. Which is still more than a third more cash flow net of taxes. It's still a almost 30% difference over a 30-year time horizon in terms of income. Oh, right? and by the way, we also have $200,000 less in taxes that are built into this. So if taxes go the wrong direction on us, we're likely saving even more money. Correct. So again, and we you know we use 1.2. We still have the 800000 on the balance sheet. It's just not being used to maybe turn on an income stream possibly or to use for something else. But the fact of the matter is, is we're using $800,000 less of an asset compared to the $2 million to turn on a higher income stream. Well, Ryan, let's go through the same example that we did last time. Scroll up to the top and pull up the uh, LBS calculators. The uh, If you click on the three, yeah, they're um, and instead of 500, let's use 800. So if we have $800,000 worth of assets growing at 4% over a 30-year time period, we've got $2.6 million sitting in a fixed account on a guaranteed basis. So we have created significantly more income, paid significantly less in taxes. Oh, and by the way, we actually have more in the way of legacy. Yep. Again. Same as last week, same disclosures. We are not recommending going out and annuitizing all of your money. You can't do that. You shouldn't do that. This is an example, and it's designed to show you why you should consider annuitizing some of your assets. It is critical to understand what assets are eligible for the tax savings associated with the the annuitization, and from last week, the amortization of assets. Where you have your dollars when you get to retirement matters a ton. Make sure you are talking to a professional that understands these differences. And please understand, we are not recommending to go put all of your money in any one basket. This is intentionally designed to create balance so that we don't end up with all of our money in a 401k or None of our money in a 401k. Yeah. We are striving for balance between traditional, Roth, taxable, and tax-free assets 
um, stuff that is inside of savings, investments, and retirement. We want there to be balance between those four buckets of money. So this is another strategy to to be able to utilize when you get to retirement. But again, as Alice keeps stating, it's about having the flexibility and the balance across your balance sheet, assets in different places that allows this to occur for the options for this. Which takes us to the question of the day, Alex. Our question today is how are you planning for the difference between cash flow and taxable income when it comes to retirement? So head over to beerandmoney.net. I'd love to hear how you all are approaching this, or maybe maybe this is the first time you've heard of it and you've got questions. At the top of that Beer and Money page is a contact us. It's a great way to reach out to us with any questions that you might have. This is a lot to take in these three episodes. Like, Feel Alex, free to watch them a couple times. Yeah, watch them a couple times. You're probably going to have questions, right? One question that we'll commonly get is, is what, you know, well, I could take maybe a higher interest rate in the other example, or, you know, maybe the, the, on my assets, maybe I don't want a $2 million legacy left in the interest only approach. Again, we're showing strategies around this. This is, this is concept. The reality of what we just showed you, especially on the interest only approach is the market's going to go up and down. We have no idea what your legacy is actually going to be. The 4% rule that we utilize is that rule of thumb that has been out there for decades at this point that essentially is stating you can take 4% of your nest egg with inflation and have a lower risk of outliving your money. And I use the word lower risk. There is still a risk. I I think people take 4% rule as like, you know, it's some guarantee and that is not the case. Well, and the 4% distribution rule actually requires us to get more like a six to 8% rate of return yeah. in order to create that. So let, let's understand the difference between a distribution rate and a rate of return. Correct. We hope this episode was valuable for you. If you got questions, reach out to us. We're here for you. Other than that, have a good one. Cheers. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice. Although the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or quantified financial partners, and opinions stated are their own. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. All investments and investment strategies contain risk and may lose value. This material is intended for general public use. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities, LLC, is not undertaking to provide investment advice or a recommendation for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact a financial representative for guidance and information that is specific to your individual situation. Ryan and Alex are registered representatives and financial advisors of Park Avenue Securities, LLC. OSJ 200 Market Street, Suite 1850, Portland, Oregon, 97201. Phone number 503-221-1226. 
Securities products and advisory services offered through Park Avenue Securities, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representatives of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. Park Avenue Securities is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Quantified Financial Partners is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Park Avenue Securities or Guardian. Ryan Burklow, CA Insurance License, number 0K24924. Alexander Collins, CA Insurance License, number 0H24806. Pinpoint number 2024-166852. Expiration January 2026.